On October 31st of 2019 in Naha, Okinawa, a fire broke out at 2.40 a.m. and completely destroyed Shuri Castle. The origin of the blaze is unknown, and four of the buildings, including the main building, were completely destroyed. Whether we realize it or not, as martial artists, we all have a deep connection to Shuri Castle, and that is what we are going to discuss today. Hey everyone, and welcome to my podcast. My name is Dave Nixon, and I'm a lifelong student of karate and the martial arts, but I'm also an instructor and a dojo owner. Whether you're just starting out in the martial arts, getting ready for your black belt, or you have your own dojo or your own club, we've got you covered. Welcome to Canadian Dojo. Hey guys, so here we are uh, on our latest episode of the Canadian Dojo Podcast, and I am here with my very good friend, Mr. Andy Mystic, who is uh, frankly one of the best martial artists I've ever trained with, and we are going today to be talking about Shuri Castle. So for anybody who's involved in karate, especially styles like Shotokan or Shorinru or Shidaru, you have a direct connection to Shuri Castle. And as I said in the intro... It burned down in 2019 on Halloween night of 2019 in the wee hours of the morning. And this is not the first time Shuri Castle has been burnt to the ground. It's actually the fourth time that it has been burnt to the ground. So kind of like Jurassic Park, trying to get fire insurance for this place must be a nightmare. But, um, you know, just to give you a bit of a background on Shuri before uh, we, we uh, bring in Andy, um, Shuri Castle is the royal palace uh, in Shuri City, which is near the Okinawan uh, capital city of Naha. Uh, it was originally built in the 14th century, 13th, 14th century, uh, you know, we suspect. Um, and as I said, it's not the first time it's, it's burned to the ground. You know, records show that Shuri Castle was completely destroyed by a fire uh, and rebuilt. And the first time it happened was in 1453. The second time was in 1660, and that was an accidental fire, apparently. And then during the Second World War, the Japanese forces uh, used Shuri Castle as their military command base, which, of course, in the Battle of Okinawa in 1945 meant that the the Allied troops just flattened it, flattened it. And it actually took until 1980 before they uh, started uh, reconstruction on it, which finished in 1989, and then 30 years later... Uh, there was a there was a fire there that uh, it decimated it. It decimated the, the 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 city. It burned for hours and hours and hours. And if you can go on you can go on YouTube and you can go on to uh, the internet and see pictures of the of the building afire. And it's just it's heartbreaking. But anyway, you know what? So like I say, uh, my good friend Mr. Andy Mystic is here. So Andy, welcome to the Canadian Dojo Podcast. Thanks, Dave. Fun to be here. I am very excited to talk to you uh, or talk with you about Shuri Castle and its connection to karate. And, uh, you know, the question that I would pose, you know, to yourself is, do, does karate exist the way it's practiced in the world today? Does, does, does what we know as karate exist without the influence of Shuri Castle throughout its history? And I'm, I'm personally, I'm not sure that it does, you know, uh, because it has such a direct connection to, uh, to the foundation of especially styles like Shorinru, Shidaru, and, and Shotokan. Uh, and we'll talk about the, the direct lineage there, but, you know, what do you, what do you think about that? 
So it's, I don't know, it's, it's a big, big question. Like, yeah. to be honest, as I think about it, it's probably, you know, a big, big question to answer in the context of, of the time that we're talking about. You know, the most, the most important thing I would say about this thing is, you know, everything is about context. Like as a martial artist, thinking about the techniques that you use, how you apply them, what they're meant to do is all really in my mind about context. And, you know, just to, to create a simple example of it, you know, if you're sitting at a table having dinner and there's a knife there, then in that context, it's a tool to help you facilitate the consumption of dinner. You know, a knife in a back alley could be a weapon, you know, so the context and, and what the meaning of the object is, is important. So, you know, so it's a big, big question because there were a lot of forces through, particularly through the 1800s that, uh, that impacted and led to the evolution of karate. And, and a lot of that centered around Shuri. And so if you don't understand the context of that, then it's really hard, I think, as a martial artist who studies, you know, particularly these styles like Shotokan, Gojuru, uh, Shidoru, like, like certainly more the, 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 the Shurite lineage would be more uh, impactful, I think. But, but even the relevance of, you know, or the differences between Nahate and Shurite, it gives you context for understanding why they're different. And so it's really important. So maybe to answer the question more directly, I don't know. It's, it, I don't know that it, that it ends up being the same thing. And, uh, and that's partly because the forces that were, were pushing on, on Okinawa at the time, uh, w w it was, you know, the way there, so there is an author named Bruce Clayton and Clayton talks about this, the Shuri crucible and this idea that the opening up of Japan and Okinawa by the U S by the Europeans, the, the constant rivalry between, uh, the Chinese for, for control of, um, of Okinawa and, and the Japanese, you know, those three or four forces all came together in a society that was weaponless for all intents and purposes. Sure. You yeah. Know? So, so that's kind of, that's the gist of it. I mean, I would say, um, the history of Okinawa and its uniqueness probably is, is one of the most important factors that I think led to the development of, of what people would say is linear high impact karate. Um, yeah, well, you know, it, in that respect, as you say, you know, you talk about all of these sort of, you know, what converging forces landing, if you will, on a very small part of the world, Okinawa, you know, or, or, or the Ryukyu Island is, is sort of, you know, archipelago type area. Um, you know, you had the influence from the Chinese, you had the influence from the Japanese, you, you know, later uh, you, you had, as you say, American and uh Europeans, you know, coming into the equation in the, the mid to late 1800s. Yeah. Um, yeah, they all had a massive impact on Okinawa and the origin of the martial arts for sure. So, so Bruce Clayton, you know, has this book. If I can just say, so yeah, Bruce, sorry. so we talked, we talked about Bruce Clayton before actually in a previous okay. podcast, okay. talking about his book, Shotokan Secrets. Yeah. And I told you guys, you know what, it, it, that Shotokan Secrets was a book that changed my life. So it was actually Andy that gave me Shotokan Secrets, and he kept telling me, you got to read Shotokan Secrets. <laughs> it's going to change your life. And, and I read it, but I just kept telling him I hadn't just because I – just because. <laughs> but uh, it, it did. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating read, and, and, and Bruce Clayton really does kind of go into the history of all of this. So I don't know like, – like Bruce, you know, again, I really respect the research that he's done. I don't, I don't know that I agree with all of his conclusions. Same here. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yep. But, but what I would say is, is this, you know, up until I had read Shotokan's Secrets, what, what, I, what I had gotten from, from, you know, books like The Weaponless Warrior, The Classical Man, you know, a lot of, a lot of karate historians was, 
you got a lot of excerpts and and narratives and stories. And and these were great eclectic stories that they gave you a sense of what the value systems of martial arts were. But it was almost like having, you know, a thousand piece puzzle and you were being handed all the pieces, but you didn't have the picture on the box. Yeah. And and so what I think Clayton's book did, for me anyway, is is it gave me the picture and and suddenly all of those pieces made sense and they came into focus. And you know, so when you think about what, what he's arguing, you know, he's basically saying, look, you know, you had, what you had was you had Chinese influences coming into Okinawa. So Okinawa sits roughly, you know, I guess halfway between uh, Japan proper and, and, and China, right? So, you know, for all intents and purposes, up until about 1609, really the Chinese controlled Okinawa. It was an extension of, of, uh, of China. And, and so you had a lot of the shuang fa and, and kind of the Chinese influences of martial arts that, that were um, pervasive. Now, in 1609, the, the Japanese basically go in and, and, and they take control of it. And the funny thing about it is, is that to a certain degree, the Chinese didn't care because, you know, there was, there was this idea that ultimately the Okinawans were still paying taxes to both systems. Yeah. So they didn't want to come into conflict. They didn't want it to, you know, it seems that they didn't want to enter into a war. And, and the Okinawans were, you know, for all intents and purposes, being doubly taxed and, and paying tribute to, to both sides. So, you know, it, it was a weird stasis that, that could continue like that. And, and basically the Okinawans were, were unarmed. And, and that was a function of two things. It was one, a function of the fact that, um, you know, the, the show king at the time, um, basically disarmed them. And that was, that was a function of, of gaining control, uh, and, and stopping kind of the civil wars that were going on within, within a small island area, or that's, yeah. you know, my understanding of it. Yeah. But then, you know, in, in 1603, you know, you've get, you get the unification of Japan under, uh, Takagawa Yasu and, um, and, and the Takagawa period basically closes off the West, you know, so for, um, you know, for 250, almost 300 years, I guess, you know, basically Europeans and, uh, you know, Americans as we got closer into the 1800s were, were shut out and, and there was no foreign, um, entry. And the reason for that was because Takugawa, uh, Yasu felt that he, he had benefited, you know, from, from Western technology and it actually allowed him to unify Japan. And so his view was, we want to keep that out and and not put Satsuma or some of these these other um, these other daimyos in a position where they could rebel. And and so basically, you know, Okinawa is closed off. It's it's for all intents and purposes controlled by by two different sovereign entities. And then in the 1640 or sorry 1840s, you know, as you get into the 1800s, once you've got the technology for uh, particularly for whalers, like surprisingly one of the biggest, uh, the biggest, um, I guess, drivers of, of foreign influence was, was apparently according to Clayton was, was, was whaling by, um, by the U S and I guess, uh, European fisher, yeah. fishermen. So, so now, you know, they're looking for supplies, they're looking for support and they, and they force their way in. And because of the technological gap, you know, the Japanese really can't, you know, certainly the Okinawans couldn't because they were, they were completely defenseless. Yeah, they couldn't compete. Now, if you turn around and, and you're a U.S. sailor and you try to go to, uh, to Japan proper and, and land in those islands, well, you know, you still had, you still had samurai to deal with that were armed. So, so you look at Okinawa and you go, hey, you know what, really nice island, 
Yeah. Nobody, nobody has and weapons. Nobody has any weapons. Right? Let's go. So, so hey, we can get supplies there. And and what what you know, Perry Commodore Perry, who who ended up you know being I think one of the the first uh, naval operators to to force uh, Okinawa open. You know what I think was underappreciated by by him and and by other sailors was that you know f- they weren't allowed. Like effectively, the the Okinawan gentry were still under Japanese control. And because of the orders that, that the Takogawa, um, you know, shogun had in place, they could be killed uh, if, if they engaged in any type of, of negotiations or contracts. So, um, so they were in a really, really tough spot. And the one thing I wonder about sometimes is that, you know, in my experience, I don't see, um, I, I don't know, I don't see, this, this whole high impact speed, uh, hypothesis, you know, being something that, that probably came out of the Chinese system. And I'm not sure it came out of, out of, you know, the Japanese experience and, and some of it almost in my mind, you know, I wonder if some of it came out of the influences of having these sailors and North Americans come in, you know, it's like, so if you look at like North American style of martial arts, you know, there might've been impacts around that, but what, What's really clear to me is that when you look at, at techniques like the, the twin knife hand strike, uh, you know, and well, particularly that one, it is is it's so it's so clear that the application, or it seems so clear to me that the application of disarming somebody with a bayoneted rifle yeah. uh, is is related to that. And and what I find even more interesting is the evidence of it in um, apparently so Clayton goes into some evidence about there being uh, a World War One training manual for U.S. soldiers, I think it was, showing that same technique. Yeah. So, so the one thing I've always wondered about, and I haven't investigated, but but it's curious to me is, you know, was was some of of Matsumura's high impact techniques derived even from the experience of uh, of dealing with these sailors and and dealing with foreign weapons coming in, where you know the Japanese and the Chinese maybe you know. Were well, see that that's thing. where I kind of pose the question again. You know, talking about the influence and in, in karate in the modern world, how how it was impacted by, you know, the royal court at Shuri Castle, because right. all of these converging things that you're talking about, it had it had a filter point, yeah. right? It all had a filter point. It all had to come in to some place. So all of the all of these things that came from China went right to Shuri Castle. All yeah. of these things that came from Japan when, when the Japanese were running the show went to Shuri Castle. Uh, the Americans came in. It, it, it all would have happened at Shuri Castle. So, you know, all of these Shuri Tei masters, um, you know, uh, you know uh, Soken Matsumura, yeah. um, who, you know, we don't really know a lot about, about the original Shuri Tei masters because quite frankly, you know, the building's been burned down, yeah. you know, so, so a lot of those records have, have been lost, but there are a couple like, like Matsumura that whose name, you know, it uh, stands the test of time. Um, but as a member of the Royal Court uh, and a Shurite master, he would have been directly influenced by all of these other external forces. And he would have, as, as you were saying, you're ta- going back to the analogy with the knife, how it can be, you know, at a, at a, an eating utensil or it can be something different in a back alley. You know, um, you know, he's influenced by all of these things. So he starts to develop systems of, of, of you know, self-defense or um, movements that are, are built around uh, defending against somebody with a rifle and a bayonet or something to that effect. But that all filters through Shuri Castle in, 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 in many ways, you know, for Shuri Tei anyway, because what you need to understand about Okinawa is that there are three prominent styles of 
I'm going to call it pre-karate uh, back then. So you had shurite, you had nahate, and then you had uh, tam- tamarite. Tamari yeah. uh, in, 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 at the core, in essence, they were all very much the same, you know, well, from a basic standpoint, but maybe a philosophical standpoint was a little bit different. Uh, but, you know, but, but Matsumura, as, you know, like, like anything, when you're, when you're talking about kata, and we will be talking more in, in detail about kata in a, in a future broadcast, but, you know, a kata is a reflection of, you know, the person who developed it, uh, the self-defense situation they were talking about, or, you know, the, the, the sign of the times, if you will. Um, so, so it's interesting, right? So maybe, maybe, you know, let's, let's break it down into, into three things, you know? So number one, what was really the setup, you know, at, at, at Shuri Castle? Secondly, what is the implication of that in terms of the style, you know? And then fourthly, what does that really mean for, for, or thirdly, what does that really mean for karate and for us? So, so the thing to keep in mind, I think with Shuri Castle is that you would have had within, within the castle itself, you would have had, um, the show king. Uh, his family retainers, you would have had Japanese dignitaries, sure. probably from, you know, um, um, uh, uh, Satsuma, I think, was, was the primary province, if I'm not mistaken. And then on the other side of the court, you would have had Chinese dignitaries. So in a very, very real way, you had direct influences within the court, for sure. Yeah. And then when you had when you had um, the Americans and Perry coming in, you know, or sailors and so forth, but, but particularly officials that wanted to try to open up trade or engage in treaties, they would have been pushing their way into the court as well. Yeah. So, so you're right. It really is kind of a cauldron uh, that, that everything kind of comes together at and those influences all kind of assert themselves, I think. Uh, but a lot of that would have happened at Naha. So in Naha port as well. So the, the port city is really where you would have had the sailors and, and most of the, the foreign influences coming in. So, so that's kind of the setup in terms of the influences. So what does that really mean in terms of um, the development of karate? Well, it, it means maybe two things. Now, I do kind of believe Clayton's argument. I, I think it does have some credence is that, well, you know, how did karate diverge then from Shuang Fa? How did, it, how did it move away from kind of the pure Chinese influences, let's say? Well, one deciding principle that's really uh, seems clear was the difference in high impact techniques. So Clayton describes it almost as this idea that there was there was a quantum leap forward in velocity of technique, and and almost this this view that where the Chinese systems were precise and focused more on joint locks and and almost thinking of it kind of like um, um, what am I thinking of? Like, like thinking almost of it from a Chinese medicine point of view, like if you're thinking about acupuncture, like meridians. Oh, yeah, like, like pressure points. Yeah, and, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so, so yeah. some of the Chinese systems had a lot of, of, of grappling uh, and pressure points and, and almost what you, you'd consider or classify or think of as being more sophisticated, nuanced, subtle strategy. Yeah, but you see some of that in the Bubishi as well. And you, you know, do. And yeah, so, yeah, so when they talk about, uh, you know, in the Bubishi, which we talked about, you know, for anybody who needs to, you know, good night's sleep, read the Bubishi. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, you, you, when, you, when you're looking at sort of the diagrams in there, it, it's very focused on, on Chinese medicine, pressure points, and things along those lines. So Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, so the leap forward really from, from Matsumura, or, or, you know, what Clayton argues is it was this movement away from subtle, sophisticated mo- movement 
to high impact, explosive, one punch, one kill. Could that have been though influenced when you when you take sort of aspects of the Chinese system and then you blend it with those aspects of the Japanese system of the Bushido, yeah. you know what, and the samurai, the samurai culture and you take those two things and put them together. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I just don't, like, it totally could be. Like, you know, the thing is, right, we're, we're looking back at this and, and we're just trying to, I think from my perspective, what we're trying to do is make sense of it. It's hard to really figure out how Matsumura, I think, would have evolved his thinking around this or where it might have come from. Like, you'd really, really have to study it very deeply, I think, to, to, to be able to come to any real conclusions about that. But I think it's really more about looking back and just saying, okay, well, what was the context? Because the context of how this thing evolves is really important for what this training means for us today, right? And so, so the two things I take from it are, number one, um, there were a lot of influences, but at the end of the day, there was, there was this high impact martial arts system that seemed to grow out of this experience. Okay. Yeah. We can't say categorically, maybe, no. you know, we know like, like Matsumura spent time in China as well. You know, it could have been something that he derived there. I think it's less likely. And, and I think the fact that he went from training as a 14 year old boy to basically, basically being the head of security, um, you know, and, and, and military advisor to the show King by the time he was, I'm guessing maybe 25, 26, yeah. he, he went basically from being a kid to being the most feared fighter in the Island. Right. Yeah. And, and recognized, you know, even, even in Japan and other areas as being, you know, a deadly, deadly fighter. Well, his so, wife was actually, a, a, she, a was she was a martial arts yeah. master as well, wasn't yeah. she? You know, yeah. It's, so yeah, yeah. No, I, I see, I find that, I find that very, very interesting to be quite honest, you know, that, uh, you know, his, his sort of, you know, link to the, the, the Shuri Castle, and as you say, head of security. And that's one of the things that I, I always sort of looked at, you know, Bruce Clayton's book, Shotokan Secrets, when he talked about these guys basically being the, the, the royal bodyguards, you know, the secret service of their time. So, so yeah, and so that's the next point I was going to make, right? Which is that, so, so it seems like this high impact technique seems to evolve from, from Matsumura, right? And, and then, the other thing that you have is you have to understand that all the people that are training at night and this whole idea of, of these masters training at night, well, what were their day jobs, right? They yeah. were, they were basically, they had been disarmed as gentry and, and they were working within the government. So they were bureaucrats administering taxation, uh, sometimes advising on, on, on policy, but largely they were there to, to, to manage the, the, the administrative system of the government. Right. Yeah. So, so, you know, and then you think about it and you go, okay, well, you know, there's, there's this old adage or this old view that, that Kabuto and all these things came from, um, you know, from, from Japanese peasants and all these things. No. Nobody, nobody, I think to this day, credibly believes that. Like, I don't think that that's an argument anybody looks no, at. When, yeah, exactly. Like when did they have time to develop any kind of martial system or, or yeah. the wherewithal of the presence in order to do something along those lines? Yeah. And, and, you know, their lifespans, I think were relatively short as well. So, yeah. I mean, you know, you probably have less time to accumulate the knowledge and dispense it. Right. So, yeah. But anyway, to, to make a long story short, I think what ends up happening there that's interesting is you have a bunch of knowledge workers that have been disarmed that, uh, you know, coincidentally, you know, there's a group of them or a cohort of them that, that seem to be involved or disseminating this high impact system that seems to be uh, a paradigm shift. And, and then the other interesting thing that you have in it that I think people have to consider is, okay, well, you create this martial arts system or you evolve this martial arts system. Well, the implications of that are important in terms of where it's being used. And so where is it being used? Well, 
it's being used probably as a, probably, I think arguably, you could say it's a bodyguard system yeah. to protect the show king. And where would that most likely get exerted? Well, most likely it's going to happen within Shuri Castle, right? Yeah. So, so then you start to look at it and go, okay, well, what's it designed for? It's designed for holding off potentially samurai, potentially, uh, you know, these, these people now, these, these foreigners that are pushing their way in that have bayoneted guns and, yeah. and swords and so forth. Right. Uh, and, and so what's really interesting to me is when you look at a lot of the bunkai as, as Clayton has laid it out, it, it seems very clear that a lot of the techniques suit that whole, um, that whole thinking very well. And, and even if you take two or three of the katas and you put them side by side, you could almost see them as training techniques for different jobs of bodyguard functions. I could almost envision yeah. that, right? So, so what does that really mean? And why is that important for us as martial artists? Well, I, I do believe Clayton, I think he's right in this one regard in particular. It means that the system is incomplete. Now, if you look at Nahate, Nahate, in my view, is still much more influenced by the Chinese systems, meaning that you have the more circular Circu blocks. Yeah. Yep. When you look at, you know, and even, again, I don't know this, but I, I, I think I could make this argument, that if you look at like iron shirt training that, that you, you hear about or, or, or I've heard talked about, at least from the Chinese systems, you know, uh, Sanchin is, is iron shirt training in my view. Organized despair. Yeah. That's, or what, <laughs> that's what Sanchin is. Right. So, so. <laughs> When you think about that, how I would interpret it or how I look at it is when you're dealing with the port cities and you have martial artists that are tied to the government, but, but maybe uh, their function is more civil, a lot of times what you see is, you know, what you could argue are night fighting techniques. You see techniques that are, are uh, more circular, techniques that are less likely to be deadly, but, but still effective and controlling. Right. Yeah. So really more lined up with the function of police officers. Right. Yeah. Like the, well, you're talking the Nahate system. Yeah. Now, yeah. now I'm talking yeah. like, like restraining as opposed to. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, when you look at the techniques within the Shurite, high impact, one blow, one kill. Yeah. Like, like meant to be deadly and, and seemingly ruthless. Okay. Yeah, but see, that's where I that's where I sort of tie it in with the samurai codes. You know, the samurai yeah. approach. You know, what you get that you get that one strike. You know, you, we see all the great movies with where samurai are you know getting into these long extended sword fights, but that just really wasn't the reality per se. Yeah. It was. It was. You got. You know, one clean strike is what you're looking for. Well, and I think what I'd argue right is that mentality in terms of the protection of the government, you know, and, and the, the one other thing Clayton talks about is, you know, at the very end of the book, he, he makes a very interesting um, connection. And, and the point that he makes is that when you look at the, the martial arts creeds that many Shotokan students recite, there's, there's a passage in many of them that says, you know, I will use karate to defend my honor, my principles. Yeah. And, and principles is not spelled you know, as, as a principal, no. it's spelt as principal, as in somebody that I am guarding. Yeah. So, so he makes this really interesting link around the idea that karate is designed for the protection of the show kings. Now, so, so when I look at that, I think that the ruthlessness of that style makes sense in that context because you're, you're defending a government. And the other issue too, is that, you know, the, the Satsuma samurai were still walking all over Okinawa. So, I mean, they were effectively there to control it. So 
they, I, I would presume that they would still be carrying swords. And, and so, so yeah. you, can't, you can't get past, I think it's very hard to get past the fact that there's, there's this influence and it's an extremely oppressive influence. You know, if, if you stole something in, in uh, you know, Takagawa, in, in the Takagawa period in Japan, it, it's not just that you could be killed, you know, your whole family could be killed. It, it was an extreme, and, and even, you know, in the San Kotai system, you know, basically what would happen so that none of the daimyo would rebel, the, um, the shogun would have three months out of the year, they would rotate, you know, so Satsuma might have uh, a family daimyo and, and, or daimyo and his family would have to go spend three months in Edo at the capital. And for all intents and purposes, they were hostages. And, and, and if Satsuma or, or Joshu or any one of these, these independent states tried to rise up, then the family would be killed, right? So anyway, so the point only is, is that, you know, in terms of the level of, um, the level of impact and, and responsiveness in aggression in the Shuri system kind of makes sense to me because if you're, if you're protecting a principle, if you're protecting yeah. a king and a, and, a, and a seat of government and, and you have these oppressive overlords, you know, you, you know, then, then it just begs the question though, how much are you going to rebel because they're just going to come in and, and slaughter you anyway, and you're not going to have any weapons. But, um, but I think what it does is it just, it talks about the time and the mentality of the people, you know, and, and I think if you live in that type of an oppressive world, um, then in all likelihood, you know, you're, you're going to think about combat in those terms. Right. So. Yeah. And again, it all filtered through Sherry Castle, right? Yeah. So you've got, you've got Matsumura and then, you know, his, he had a, he had obviously, let's call them students. I, I you know, what yeah. acolytes, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, but the one that sort of sticks out to me, and this is why I, I, I believe that without, without Shuri Castle, the way we practice karate in the world today would be, would be, if, if at all, would be very different yeah. um, because um, uh, Anko Otosu, Itosu, yeah. right, who was Matsumura's student, uh, he had several other students that he trained that went off to basically form, take take what they learned in Shurite and, and learn from Atosu who learned from Matsumura. And they in turn um, went off and founded uh, the uh, uh, Matoburu system, the Shidoru system, uh, and of course the Shotokan system, Gichin Funakoshi. And Gichin Funakoshi is, you know, right, you, you, right or wrong, but he's considered by many to be the father of modern karate, you know, when he brought it to, to Japan and started teaching, teaching in Japan in the school system, which actually was Itosu's idea. Yeah. So it was Itosu that, that first started teaching karate. Um, you know, he believed that Shurite was, um, could potentially be a valuable asset to the Japanese government. Uh, and so he promoted uh, surete training uh, as as a method of developing you know strong healthy kids and teens. So I don't I don't know if it was him in particular. Like maybe you're right. I, I don't know. But but what is interesting to me about that whole thing, you know, and and this is the whole thing about context again. You know, when you look at when you look at karate in Japan, really what was happening is again influences. So the Takagawa period, even though it ends, you know, with the Meiji Restoration. Oh, was that 1868? 1868. 1868. Yeah. So, so you have this, this, this restoration where they restore the emperor, they get rid of the shogunate, they disarm, they disarm all the samurai, right? So they're not, you know, basically killing people in daily life. Mm. And, but even today, I would argue that 
Japanese society has has been influenced. Conformity in that society, uh, I, I think, is very high, partly because of the legacy of the Takugawa period that was just so oppressive. So, so what you have is you have Japan now coming out of the restoration, starting to, in, in a way, sow its oats. And, and what they're looking to do is enter the modern world and compete alongside the U.S. and other powers. And, and what they need to do is they need to build an army. And what they, what they realize is, you know, a lot of these karate masters are living into their 80s, you know, and they're living, living very fruitful lives and they're strong and they're capable. So if we're going to build a fighting force and, and exert our own empire building in a sense, what better way to do this than, than introducing karate into uh, the Japanese school systems? Now, we can't, we can't teach kids how to poke out eyes and, and choke people out or, or whatever. There, there's a level of, of violence that, that you don't want broadly being taught. But what you can begin to do is you can be, begin to lay the health foundations, the, the mind-body strength, to, to build your army. And, and so, you know, the argument is as it, as it moves into uh, Japan proper, what they do is they say, well, we need to formalize it as the Japanese always do so well. Yeah. And we'll take the judo belt system and we'll throw that onto it, right? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was Funakoshi. Like this, this yeah. is the whole thing, you know, and again, I, this will be another topic for another day talking about, you know, modern martial arts versus traditional martial arts. But Funakoshi, you know, Itoshu, Itosu, Matsumura, they never had black belts. Yeah. They weren't black belts. Funakoshi was never, never, was never a black belt. He, though he did actually, as, as far as I remember reading, he did actually present the first black belts to people in Japan for karate. Yeah. But they took that from judo and, you know, for, yeah. from an existing, you know, belt system. That's or, my know. understanding of it too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was, it was just like, well, listen, they've already got one over there that's working just fine. So we'll just, we'll just take theirs and put it into karate. So again, you know, from your own self-defense point of view, why are these things also important, you know, and, and how I look at it is, okay, so what I know, this is my conclusion personally and, and what I've, I've observed and what I think holds true. The bodyguard elements of, of the system in terms of, you know, the low blocks, the middle blocks, a lot of the techniques to peel people off in self-defense situations are super, super effective. Yeah. What, what you don't have, what you don't have, I think, in Shurite, uh, what I, I don't see a lot of or I don't believe exists to a high degree is the groundwork, right? So you don't have the grappling, but, but why? I mean, it totally makes sense. If, if you've got, you know, 50 sailors in a room you don't want to go to the ground with them. You want to hit, strike, move, right? So, so the system, the system has some very, very effective techniques that can be employed, I think, for self-defense. But they're hit and run. You know, I think generally they're hit and run, high impact, high velocity, frequently, you know, dangerous techniques. But, but they're designed for a specific context. Now, you know, for me personally, you know, I, I, I think incorporating some boxing elements, some groundwork, and other things rounded out, but. The people that throw away karate and just dismiss it as not being uh, effective or useful, don't I understand think, it. yeah, I think they miss, yeah. they miss it because they don't understand the context. Now, it, it's understandable that karate has lost value or respect in a lot of ways because, because I think what happened is when it moved to Japan and they watered it down, a lot yeah. of the masters that learned it really didn't know the full applications. And I think when it came to North America, that's why you had so many people that knew Kata, but absolutely had no idea what the real applications were. 
right? Yeah, and, so, and, and you get that, you know, to understand sort of, you know, kata, you really you really need to understand the history of karate and yeah. the history of, you know, the, the where and when it was developed and, by, and the by whom it was developed, if you can figure that out. Sometimes you can't. But, you know, understanding the, the, the history of, 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 of karate as a whole or the history of Okinawa really can tie into sort of that, uh, that knowledge of, of what kata really is meant to be. But I agree with you. Again, going back to Shotokan's Secrets and Bruce Clayton, one of the things that sort of stuck with me in that book was um, he was talking about um, how he feels that the masters of old would kind of look at uh, the teaching of karate in, in the modern world and maybe shake their heads a little bit because there's been no adaption. Um, you know, what it's, uh, it, um, you know, he, he you know, as things have changed, as the world has changed, you know, listen, when was the last time you were, you, you know, you were charged with a musket and a bayonet, you know, <laughs> let's be honest. It just, it yeah. just, you know, well, you know, maybe in Hamilton, <laughs> but, uh, you know, to all my viewers and my listeners in Hamilton, I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, you know, it, it just, it just doesn't happen anymore, but the, but there is practical bunkai application for that technique otherwise. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was one of the things that sort of really stuck with me about that. Um, you know, I think the other thing it does, like, you know, for example, the twin knife strike, when I learned the twin knife strike, I was, I was taught it, you know, as a, somebody throwing a jab and a reverse punch and you could use the lead hand to parry and the second one to cut to the bicep, you know, and, and that works but it doesn't really make sense as effectively as thinking about somebody coming at you with a bayonet, being in a back stance and sliding in to parry the bayonet and grabbing the gun, Yeah. right? So that, like, like that just intuitively, when you observe it, it looks so natural and so uh, obviously the right, the right, it seems to me the right technique. Yeah. But, but what does it tell you? Well, it also tells you that there's principles, you know, whether you're trying to use it to block a left, right, whether you're using it to disarm a gun, there's still issues around timing. There's still utility in it, you know? So, so if you take back and if you take a step back and you try to think about the underlying principles of the technique, you know, and take more, um, more of a philosophical view, uh, and, and almost a strategic view of these things, I still think that there's a lot of value in karate, but, oh, yeah. you know, but the reality is this, if you want to build a standing army, you know, and, and fortify that, you want to look at the history of, of the Japanese implication of it or implementation of it in the school systems. If you want to develop a high skill level, I think you're going back, in my view, more to the Okinawan way of doing it and not to discount or discredit the Japanese. Like I think there's some very, very, you know, I mean, exceptional Japanese masters as well. Yeah. But I think... You know, you're going to find the heart of it. And, and what you're going to do, guys like Clayton, I think, uh, are going to go back and, and going to find um, deeper meaning, I think, in, in some of the applications and, and get more to the heart of, of the reality of it, you know. Yeah. And, and there's some other, I just have to say, like, there's some other fantastic historians that, uh, you know, I mean, we're kind of spitballing here, but I mean, there are people like uh, like Pat McCarthy. Pat McCarthy, yeah. I think I think Bruce Clayton, you know. I mean, these guys, I think... It, whether you completely agree with their views, I mean, the one thing that you have to say, you know, they've they've taken the work that people like Richard Kim and, and um, you know, Richard Kim is the one that comes to the, the forefront of my mind. Sure. They, they, they've taken the work of people like that that really were passing on narratives uh, and, and giving context. And they've really done the research and they've dug into it and they found evidence. You can't, you may discount or disagree with some of their conclusions, but the body of work that they've done, I think, has really informed 
and given good, good context so that martial artists can look at this and figure out what techniques are right for them yeah. and what pieces of karate, you know, are, are valuable, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And sort of bringing it back to my, my original point, you know, what, uh, uh, you know, the modern, you know, do we have, do we have what we call karate today, good or bad, good or bad, you know, without the influence of Shuri Castle, Matsumura, Itosu, right? You know, like you, I, I, you can draw a straight line right from, you know, the front doorstep of Shuri Castle right to, well, frankly, right to my dojo today. Yeah, that's true. You know, and, and good, like you say, good or bad, because as you get that watered down version of karate that was introduced in the school system, because you're not going to teach kids here, I'm going to poke, you know, let's teach you how to poke somebody's eyes out because it would be pandemonium at lunchtime, right? So <laughs> it's, just, it's just not going to happen. But- you know, but that's that's what I'm talking about in regards to Gichin Funakoshi and being the father, quote unquote, in air quotes, of of modern karate. You know, it may have been a Tosu as I've as I've sort of done research and, and you know, the, whose originally whose original idea it was to to start this with kids and teens, but it was Funakoshi that made it happen. Yeah. So yeah, I I don't know. I I again I I I, I don't know. I I, I think that Without Shuri Castle, whether we've got karate or not, or whether karate is just an, you know, like Greco-Roman wrestling is just something that's done in a small, you know. I think, I think there's a lot of evidence to say that societies that, that fall under pressure and particularly small societies that find themselves at the crux of, of the influences of foreign powers end up developing something interesting and unique. And, and so you know, the way I would, I would, you know, and, and, and Britain, I think is, is an island nation that, that is similar in that regard. I think when, when you look at the, the advances in technology in Europe, you know, it's, it's really funny that Europe in, in many respects is such a tight condensed place and, and there's been so much development and, and so much war too, sure. right? Because of, of conflicting cultures. So I think anytime you get a small place that has a lot of pressures on it, you create this cauldron environment. So to answer the question, this is what I really think. I think eventually something like karate, high impact techniques would have evolved because it was a paradigm shift that was that was likely to happen somewhere in the world. But the fact that Shuri Castle in Okinawa exists where it does and the fact that those influences came to bear on it the way it did probably was uh, you know, really the reason why karate evolved. And, and it probably is the central reason that we have it the way we do today. And I don't know that it exists today. Like something yeah. like it would have evolved somewhere. Yeah, but, but, but not I think, like it did. But not like sure. it did. Yeah. yeah. So No, uh, you know what? Well, you know what? I, I That's my thought as well. So on that note, we have decided, you know what? Listen, if you're a person who studies karate of any style, uh, you know, I do Shotokan here, but I've done Goju among other styles. We've been influenced by Shuri Castle, whether you, whether you realized it or not. And in um, on October 31st of 2019, when it burned to the ground, it, it's they're rebuilding it. Uh, it's going to start construction in 2022, and uh, the it's anticipated that it should be done by 2026. But you know, with everything that's going on in the world, who knows? But uh, 
you know, it, it was a little bit heartbreaking for me when I saw that it, you know, when I was like yeah. when it burnt down because you know it is we are connected to it whether we realized it or not. The one the one thing I just want to add really quickly is you know I think that there is a, uh, I'm going to donate money myself but I think that there's a there is. A, a, a funding source or a platform and so yes if and anybody I, I will post that on 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 my Facebook and my Instagram and things like that so if anybody would like to make a contribution. Uh, to the rebuilding effort. Uh, the last time I saw, they had raised almost $4 million or 4 million euro. Yeah, so, I got to say, yeah. I, you know, that was, for me, that was a bit of a pilgrimage. Like, I really, really wanted to go see Shuri. And me unfortunately, too. And, know, and I will. I I, yeah. I, I will. But you know what? Uh, I, I 2026, when it's yeah. reopened and it's rebuilt. and But COVID struck and then it burnt down. And so, then, yeah, yeah, it just, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's on my, it's very much on my to-do list. And maybe, you know what, uh, Five or six years from now, when uh, we have a couple hundred students at the dojo, we can all do a club a club pilgrimage. Awesome, uh, and that'd be fantastic. So, you know what? I would like to thank my good friend and my and my uh, guest host tonight uh, today, uh, uh, Mr. Andy Mystic. Thanks so, for having uh, me. Hey, you know what? It was awesome having you here and uh, and uh, listening to your wisdom. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, good man. Alrighty, so thanks everybody, and remember, uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, we'll see you in the next episode.